Welcome, friends. You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Kale Brooks on the ones and twos, super producer, helps us out quite a bit with this show. And uh, really looking forward to the show today, Nando. Really? Kale's really the brains behind the operations. We're just the looks. We just uh, provide the the good looks. Kale Kale is also very good looking, but he he really provides the brains. So, uh, yeah, very happy to have Kale's support throughout the week and building this show. I'm very excited for this show. You're talking stonks, which I'm very curious to hear about because it is like the story. It's already like the story of the year. I mean, it's it's got to be a it's, it's got to be in the in the running for story of 2021 and 2021 has still got a long way to go. And then we have the absolute boy himself, Jezza, Jeremy Corbin, Arsenal fan, hero of mine. Very excited. It's going to be such a great show. I'm really, really looking forward to that conversation. Um, And uh, your segment as well, uh, something that, uh, you know, is certainly being focused on um, by all sides of the political spectrum. Um, It's the filibuster, the legislative filibuster in the Senate. Uh, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about that. And I know that you have some pretty good sound um, to share with the audience. Um, And yes, Stonks. I can't wait to talk about that. We're going to take a little while, I think, with our decodes uh, today, and then we'll follow that up with our interview with Jeremy Corbyn. And then we're going to take your questions. So if you're watching live, please leave your questions, uh, your super chat questions, and we'll try to get to as many of them as possible. Um, And thank you to everyone for watching and for supporting the show. Make sure you subscribe, hit that bell so you can get notifications every time we go live or upload new content. Um, Mm. But before we get to to all of our fun stuff, uh, why don't we give a shout out to our partner, Verso? All righty. Well, as you guys all know, you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to four books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. As a special introductory offer, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The reader tier is only $5 a month for ebooks only. And the comrade tier is $20 a month. And if you join in January, you'll get How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire by Andreas Malm. The Care Crisis, What Caused It and How Can We End It by Emma Dowling. Capitalism and the Sea, The Maritime Factor in the Making of the Modern World by Liam Campling and Alejandro Colas. And Lessons on Rousseau by Louis Althusser. Thank you, Kale. That was perfect pronunciation. That was that was Thank you. fantastic. So good. Nailed it. So so good. Um, Very good. All right. Let's uh let's not waste any time today. Uh no, no. banter. Let let's get straight no to the filibuster. Uh, because I all can't right. wait to hear your take on this. Let's do it. All righty. Well, uh, I don't know about you guys, but it sure feels like our country has a ton of problems these days. I mean, there's the coronavirus pandemic, and that really sucks. That triggered an economic catastrophe, which also really sucks. And this isn't even taking into account all the other myriad problems we had before then. But that's why we have a government to deal with the problems. And hey, we got the bad men out of there, and we got the good guys in. Maybe they can do something to stop the problems. At least that's what they told us they were going to do, including sending us a fat $2,000 check in the mail. But there's one thing standing in the way, something called the filibuster. Filibuster, it's a big deal. <laughs> it is a big deal. It I'm sounds not, kind of weird, yes. but I'm telling you, America, it matters to your future. And it will dictate how you live. 
That's right. The filibuster, it sounds kind of weird, but it will dictate how you live. And the thing is, those Fox News psychos are not exactly wrong. The filibuster is a thing that is used by senators to block legislation, and the Senate is where social progress in America goes to die. You see, contrary to popular belief, most Americans want social progress. They want the government to help them and make their lives better. And if you look at American history, there's been plenty of instances when the House of Representatives actually passed some piece of legislation that would be tremendously helpful. Often, the president sitting in the White House indicated his support for the legislation, saying he would sign it if it came to his desk. But that legislation would never reach the president's desk because the Senate would find ways to block it. This happened a lot, for example, during the presidency of Harry S. Truman. He wanted to pass his fair deal, basically an upgrade to FDR's New Deal. The House was full of New Dealers who wanted to pass it, but you've never heard of the fair deal, because it never passed. His ambitious agenda to socialize healthcare and boost wages and the like died time and time again in the Senate. Often, the Senate can block things simply by its very undemocratic nature. I mean, it's All 50 states, no matter their population size, get the same amount of senators, too. But when that doesn't work, they use something called the filibuster. The filibuster makes it so that a simple majority is not enough to get a piece of legislation passed. But few people really know what the filibuster is, despite the fact that, as the Fox News psycho said, it will dictate how you live. Because its providence is so utterly stupid and insane that it's almost too shocking for our small little human brains to process. I mean, seriously, I think if a lot of people were told how the filibuster came to be, they would not believe it because it's hard to believe that the most powerful government in the history of the world would actually work like that. Because the filibuster is not a law. It's not even a senatorial rule. It's a tactic that takes advantage of the absence of a rule. As Robert Caro explains in his classic book, The Master of the Senate, every single parliamentary body in the world has to have a rule in place that allows for a certain time limit to consider a piece of legislation before deciding to vote on it and then move on to the next thing. He writes, a provision to make possible this most fundamental of legislative functions, a provision for moving the previous question for a senator to make a motion to demanding that a measure be brought to a vote without further debate or amendment, had been adopted by the British Parliament in 1604. America's House of Representatives had adopted it in 1789. By, ni- eight, by 1948, some version of this motion had been incorporated into the functioning of 45 of America's 48 state legislatures and most and of most of the legislative bodies in the world other countries as well. It's like when you play rock, paper, scissors uh, with someone and you have to decide uh, what the rules are. You know, you argue over the rules. Is it two out of three or you just do it on the first try or do you throw your hand after shoot or just on the shoot? Eventually, you need to shut up and settle on something and play the game. Basically, when you have some sort of legislator, some sort of argumentative parliamentary body, you have to have rules in place to tell people to stop arguing already and just vote on whatever it is. Except The Senate doesn't have such a rule. So in theory, the argument can go on forever. And often it did. Carroll writes, There took place, therefore, so many extended discussions of measures to keep them from coming to a vote that the device got a name, filibuster or pirate, and which passed into the Spanish as filibustero because the sleek, swift ship used by Caribbean pirates was called a filibote and into legislative parlance because the devices were, after all, a pirating or a hijacking of the very heart of the legislative process. Now, you would think, man, that seems like a huge oversight. Man, founding fathers, real oversight. And it is. And they knew that. And in 1917, they tried to put in a rule that would allow for things to move on. Great. 
They came up with a solution and they called it Rule 22. Rule 22 created a mechanism in which permitting a debate upon a pending measure to be closed off when a petition for such cloture, and that's a word you'll hear a lot in the next few weeks, was presented by 16 senators. It was approved by two-thirds of the senators present and voting. Huzzah, they thought to themselves in 1917. We have killed the filibuster with this Rule 22. No longer will these nefarious filibusteros be able to pirate the heart of the legislative process. But alas, they were wrong for they neglected a very important thing. How do you decide to decide what a bill is even pending in the first place? Carroll writes, while Rule 22 made cloture possible on any pending measure, any bill that had been brought to the floor to be dealt with next. Other Senate rules required a motion and vote to make a measure pending, and in the 1917 rule neglected to mention such a vote. A senator or group of senators could therefore begin talking as soon as a motion was made to bring to the floor a bill they didn't like. And there was still no procedure to impose cloture and stop them from talking, and therefore a vote on that motion could never be taken, and the bill would never get to the floor, thus never reaching the stage at which cloture could be applied. If this sounds like the dumbest thing ever to you, well, you would be right. It is. But remember what the Fox News guy said. This kind of stupidity is what dictates how you live. Now, there's been a lot of talk about how a minority of racist Southern senators forever used the Senate's power and specifically the filibuster to block civil rights legislation for a century. And that is 100% true. The Civil War ended in 1865 and civil rights wasn't passed until 1964. But the other minority that benefited from the filibuster was not racist Southerners, but capitalists. As Branko Marcetic writes in in Jacobin, One minority group that has richly benefited from the filibuster are, quote, people of means, known to the rest of us as the rich. From 1965 to 66, Everett Dirksen led a successful filibusters against Lyndon Johnson's attempt to repeal the section of the Taft-Hartley Act that allowed states to pass right-to-work laws. Taft-Hartley is what eventually killed organized labor. A three-day filibuster in 1979 succeeded in protecting more of the oil industry's profits from a new tax. And in the 1990s, Senate Republican leader Bob Dole first turned to the threat of the filibuster from an extraordinary occurrence to a virtually de rigueur maneuver, killing a stimulus package, healthcare overhaul, and lobbying and campaign finance reform all in the first two years of the Bill Clinton presidency. And we can probably all remember the way Mitch McConnell further escalated even that radical strategy in the Obama years. Which brings us to today. Because while the filibuster was always awful... Mitch McConnell has taken it to new heights. You see, people think of the filibuster as some senator having to speak for hours on end before collapsing, or just Ted Cruz saying random shit like this. On a Saturday or Sunday morning when your dad's making pancakes, it is very cool when he can like flip them and make them, you know, make them do a flip high in the air and catch them. He also, I will, t- I will credit my father, he invented, this wasn't for the restaurant, but he did it anyway, he invented green eggs and ham. I don't believe there's been a day on this Senate floor that I haven't worn my argument boots. I'm wearing my argument boots right now. Um, so you see, in the 1970s, they tried to amend the rules again to make filibusters harder so that you, you know, that this, you, you couldn't just talk and talk and talk forever. But I won't bore you with the details, but the fact was exactly the opposite. It made them way easier. Now you no longer had to talk for hours. You could just threaten to talk for hours, and that was enough. The use of the filibuster began to rise in the 1970s, and under Mitch McConnell, it's become the norm rather than the exception. 
But we can see really the difference is how often the filibuster is used now. If you look at this chart, look at the remarkable rise in the use of the filibuster. This is the number of times each Senate in those years has voted to try and end a filibuster. Some years hardly at all. Now we're into the hundreds. As Senate has held more and more votes to end the filibuster, this has meant that the filibuster has become a part of everyday life in the Senate. Yep, it's everyday life in the Senate, because now for anything to pass in the Senate, you actually need 60 votes instead of the usual 51. So today, the Democrats control the White House, they control the House of Representatives, and they control the Senate, but they only have 50 votes in the Senate plus the vice president's tie-breaking vote. So they don't have 60 votes. So McConnell and Republicans can still block any legislation they want. And because of the Republicans' advantage in rural areas, they will likely have this ability for the foreseeable future. So the only choice we have for anything meaningful to pass, even standard liberal stuff that the Democrats want to pass, the only hope is that they abolish the filibuster. So will they? Well, here's Democratic Senator from the great state of West Virginia, Joe Manchin. When they talk about whether it be packing the courts or ending the filibuster, I will not vote to do that. I will not vote to pack the courts, I think, and I will not vote to end the filibuster. And Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema also said that she would not vote to end the filibuster and that she is not open to changing her mind on it. Yes, queen. So at least for the time being, the filibuster is here to stay. But if Democrats were smart, they'd maybe find a way to end it in practice without ending it in name. I mean, and those ideas are out there. For example, Norm Ornstein, a conservative scholar of political science, has one such idea He writes, quote, there is a simple way to do this, and in the meantime, keep Rule 22 and mollify Manchin et al., while also providing an opening for Biden and his Democrats to get big things done. That is to flip the numbers. Instead of 60 votes required to end debate, the procedure should require 40 votes to continue it. And if at any time the minority cannot muster 40 votes, debate ends, cloture is invoked, and the bill can be passed by the votes of a simple majority. This is undoubtedly a half measure, but it's a start. And the stakes for Democrats couldn't be higher because because the American political institutions are structurally tilted towards Republicans. There's, of course, you know, the aforementioned Senate, but also the Electoral College, which allows Republicans to win the presidential elections despite losing the popular vote. Then there's all those little state legislatures they control. And because 2020 is a census year, that means a new round of redistricting and, of course, gerrymandering. And that's not counting the further restrictions on voting Republicans are already pursuing through legislation. According to a report by the Brennan Center for Justice, 106 bills to restrict voting access have been introduced in 28 states just this year. Now, one of the liberal arguments you see against ending the filibuster goes something like this. Be careful what you wish for. When the GOP is in power, you're going to want that filibuster to block all their awful policies. But as socialists, I don't think we should fear making our system more democratic filibuster and the Senate as a whole is the most undemocratic part of our system. The House of Representatives, as flawed as it is, routinely passes pretty progressive legislation that would improve people's lives. And history shows us that once big universal programs pass, they're very difficult to claw back through democratic means. See the survival of Social Security and Medicare. Getting rid of the filibuster will not mean that we can seize the means of production overnight, but it does allow us to organize around and pass desperately needed short-term reforms, such as immediate coronavirus relief, a drastic expansion of voting rights, such as H.R. 1, which passed in the House, and maybe even the PRO Act, which would be the most pro-labor legislation since the Wagner Act in 1935. 
Our system's lack of democracy helps capital control the system, which in turn weakens labor power, which in turn helps capital control it even more. More democracy will allow us to remove the barriers so that we can begin building labor power once again. And it starts with abolishing the filibuster. I love your uh, comment in response to the liberal argument in, in keeping the filibuster because it, it really – their argument, I think – embodies everything that represents uh, neoliberal Democrats in America. Their flaccid approach to everything, uh, governing from a place of absolute fear and uh, thinking about what could happen if they change the rules uh, to make the process to, you know, either campaign policy against their best interests. And I just, we need to stop thinking that way. And we need to like decouple ourselves from that kind of ideology um, that's running rampant uh, among Democrats right now. The other thing I wanted to mention, and I agree with so much of what you said, uh, Nando. One of the other things I wanted to mention, though, is that there are certain loopholes, right? There are certain procedural um, things available to the Democratic Party if they genuinely want to pass the types of policies that we desperately need right now. And that, of course, is reconciliation. Um, and since Bernie Sanders is now the chair of the Senate Budget Committee, he has the ability to pass um, robust economic relief through reconciliation. But in response to everything that Republicans are doing right now in um, maintaining this filibuster with the help of cinema and mansion, Biden came out and essentially said, okay, we're going to split this economic relief bill into two. The first one is meant to appeal to Republicans. It's so skimpy in providing relief and, by the way, funding for vaccine distribution um, that what we'll do is we'll take the things that were cut in the first skimpy bill and we'll put it in the more robust bill, which we'll try to pass through reconciliation. Why are we playing these games? Like, why are we playing these games right now? Just get it done right away through reconciliation if you can't get rid of the filibuster, the legislative filibuster right now. And then as soon as you get that robust relief passed, what you should do is go to Arizona, go to West Virginia, and start like rallying against these politicians, uh, Cinema and Mansion. They're not up for re-election anytime soon. But the point of rallying is basically to do what Matt Gates just did to Liz Cheney in Wyoming, right? Make sure that their constituents harass the hell out of them for playing ball with the Republican Party uh, and serving as obstacles to the economic relief that Americans desperately need right now. I mean, you look at polling in West Virginia, for instance, and the vast majority of people living there are supportive of $2,000 reoccurring checks. They're in, in favor of raising the minimum wage. More than 50% of people living in West Virginia right now cannot pay uh, for their basic needs. And so, again, I, I just the, the moral of what I'm trying to say here, the, the thesis here is that the Democratic Party is so pathetically weak. And if they're going to try to govern the way that they did under the Obama administration, then we're in for a world of trouble two years from now. Uh, there's no question Republicans are going to take back uh, the Senate easily, easily, and possibly also the House of Representatives, considering the Democrats have a slim majority there as well. Uh, it's just I don't think they really fully understand uh, the severity of this moment. Uh, there are only a few, honestly, one <laughs> politician on the left that understands uh, what's at stake here, and that's Bernie Sanders. 
Yeah, I mean, I, one of the things that Democrats, um, besides, aside from all our um, ideological differences with them and the structural, you know, incentives that they have because of their donors and because of the way the system works and all that stuff, one of the things that they've kind of believed deep in their bones, a lot of them, especially ones that came of age um, during the sort of Reagan ascendancy, is that the country is like horribly reactionary. You know that 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 the vast majority of people in America are, are 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 on the right, and that they are just kind of trying to stem the tide of like um, of just this reactionary beast that is the population. When the reality is like, yes, the I think a lot of the country hates Democrats, but they support all kinds of uh, you know progressive policies, like you mentioned in West Virginia. You know, so Joe Manchin, I I, I am sympathetic to his pose as kind of being opposed to the Democratic Party and like kind of being um, uh, positioning himself in opposition to them on on a lot of a lot of the time, because that does undoubtedly help him today in West Virginia. But what he doesn't realize is that that doesn't mean uh, supporting reactionary policies. Like if he were to use his leverage um, that he has over the Democratic caucus right now to say, I don't know, get more infrastructure funding for West Virginia, which they would give it to him. Um, he would then help his people. He could run on that. You know, look, this new highway or this new train thing or whatever. Like I gave you that, you know, and, and look at all these jobs and look at all these new hospitals I built and whatever. Um, that would be a huge way to maintain his own power while still posing in opposition to the Democratic Party's kind of brand or uh, elite, like that would be the right strategy from a sort of cynical position for Joe Manchin. Um, I totally agree with you. Just to to really quickly add something to that. Um, There needs, first of all, ask yourselves, why do people hate the Democratic Party so much? And it's because the Democratic Party has gone from, you know, in some capacity representing the best interests of workers to now uh, being these corporatists that have uh, accomplished nothing for working Americans. That's where the hatred really comes from. And so uh, for Manchin wanting to distance himself from that in order to appeal to his constituents in a red state, I get that. But my point here is that forget about labels, forget about parties. Focus on the issue here. And the issue at hand is something that's incredibly popular across the board, regardless of what political ideology a constituent follows, right? Everyone's struggling right now. They need the checks. They need an increase in minimum wage. And so if Democrats were willing to play hardball against Joe Manchin the way they're willing to play hardball against progressives in the House like AOC or Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar, they could actually, you know, get Senator Manchin to heal and and they just they're unwilling to do that. They're unwilling to play hardball like that. And it's incredibly frustrating. And even even with uh, other Republicans, like if they were more aggressive, both on the things that they do have control over, starting with, for example, executive action, you know, like, I mean, David Dayen has written a lot about this in his day one agenda. It's like there's tons of stuff that Joe Biden can just do. And that puts the pressure on Republicans to, you know, like if you're just kind of doing stuff stuff and like leaving everyone else behind, it it kind of can sweep it can have the effect of sweeping in a bunch of people to this like momentum. Um, And second of all, like, yeah, like you said, budget reconciliation, like if you kind of use those threats, like you have to use the meaningful leverage that you have the meaningful bullets that you have and you have to use them and if you if they don't believe that you're going to you're actually going to use them they will always 
beat you in the negotiation. That's just the reality. So like you have to go off and start doing stuff. You cannot wait for them. You cannot wait for these people. You cannot negotiate with terrorists. The Republican Party is not something <laughs> totally. that you can negotiate with. You just cannot. You have to. It's right. it's a it's raw naked power. Use it and then force them to consider their options, which are like, Remember, okay, these people are going to. Yeah. No, you're so right. And remember, when Trump was pushing for a more a more robust relief package, a Republican that, you know, all these Republican lawmakers are loyalists to, they still would not pass the relief bill, right? Mitch McConnell still served as a giant obstacle to getting that done. So if they were unwilling to work with a Republican president to get relief passed. What makes Joe Biden think that the Republican Party is going to want to work with him to to pass anything? Right. So I think even he if was he vice president this, under Obama. It's just it he blows saw it my firsthand. Mind. It blows my <laughs> mind. It's so frustrating. And by the way, reconciliation was used to pass Donald Trump's tax cuts for the rich in 2017. Um, so, uh, Republicans have no problem using that, uh, method to get what they want. Um, so just something to keep in mind as this, uh, honestly unbearable debate continues to rage on as, uh, millions of Americans suffer during this crisis. It's just so frustrating. Hmm. All right. Well, um, your turn, the stocks stonks. Okay. All right. Well, uh, there's a lot here. So many twists and turns. I, I couldn't narrow this down because there are so many things I wanted to hit on. So um, buckle up. We're going to go for a wild ride. The most thrilling story of the week involved a rowdy and undeniably clever group of Redditors who uh, decided to take on Wall Street hedge funds who had been shorting the market. Now, the story revolves around hedge funds uh, that short certain stocks, meaning they bet against certain businesses. And they make money doing it if their bet turns out to be correct. Um, and when they predict that these companies will fail, there are all sorts of downsides that come along with that, you know, aside from the fact that it doesn't actually provide any value to society. It also can help to accelerate the decline of a company when they put out their data arguing that the company is going to fail soon. Now, this type of negative analysis, again, unfairly accelerates the decline of of uh, small businesses, uh, and in this case, companies like GameStop, which to be sure had some labor practices that I disagree with. But for the purposes of this discussion, let's put that aside and focus on what the heart of this story is. Small investors, also known as retail investors, finding an issue with these hedge funds shorting stocks and deciding to work collectively to fight back against them. And so one of the targets in this subreddit, Wall Street Bets, was a hedge fund known as Melvin Capital, which had decided to short uh, the brick and mortar video game store, GameStop. And here's how. But it, there is a story here beneath the surface of hedge fund, the big guys shorting this and smaller yeah. players, retail investors buying it and making windfall profits, at least on paper. 
at the expense of those short sellers. I mean, right. it's like a David versus Goliath story, or it's a storyline in the TV show Billions, or it's a Michael Lewis story uh, <laughs> novel. You know, it's all, all those things wrapped in one. It's so <laughs> interesting. And people keep talking about it and, and, and talking about GameStop. Look, the, the fundamentals of the company have been rough here. You know, they ha- they're not making any money. They've been closing stores. Uh, you see these big short positions in the stock. And then you this Reddit board, this Wall Street Bets Reddit message board. It's almost like a populist trader uprising to support the stock. So there are some caveats to that narrative, which we'll get to in just a minute. But before we do so, let me give you a little more detail into what the strategy was here by these uh, Reddit users. Wall Street Bets publicly hatched a plan on the forum to buy and hold GameStop stock and GameStop call options in order to drive the price up so high, it would create something known as a short squeeze. A short squeeze is when a price jumps so high that the short sellers, in this case, Melvin Capital, are forced to buy back the stock to close out their position. So pretty early on, after they hatched this plan, it was pretty clear uh, that Melvin Capital was in some trouble. The Redditors made the hedge funds pay for this risky shorting maneuver, essentially betting against the market uh, value of the targeted asset, by collectively driving GameStop's share price up by as much as 1,700%. It's just absolutely insane. And uh, it continues. Uh, This, in turn, forced those who bet heavily against it to cover their losses by buying back more stock, driving prices even higher. The sometimes six, seven, and even eight-figure payouts earned among several users in this online pack quickly became the stuff of meme legend. And I personally recommend checking those memes out because they were hilarious. Uh, But this did, in fact hurt Melvin Capital, brought them to their knees, and here's what that looked like. This is really causing some issues for these hedge funds, specifically ones like Melvin Capital, who doubled down on their bet against uh, GameStop and had a new cash injection from Steve Cohen and Ken Griffin. And that's because this narrative has emerged on Reddit that's basically says we're taking on these hedge funds, that we're sort of the white knights coming in for these hedge funds that long have come on to, uh, uh, you know, the financial news channels and done essentially what they say they're doing. So when you look at hedge fund positioning. Melvin ones, I've been digging through what puts they have. They have been taking off. So no doubt Melvin Capital is in a lot of pain. Everything from GameStop to stocks here in Europe, such as Evotech, which they're short. At the same time, hedge fund shorts in general rallied 15% over the past two days. That's their best session since 2012. And we see evidence that they're starting to have to unwind their longs in order to pay for the pain that they are seeing in these other short positions that are getting out absolutely crushed. Uh, So now it's almost become this risk that if you're publicly coming out as a hedge fund and disclosing the stocks that you're against, against, as one trader, uh, as one Twitter user put it, you're at risk of getting Melvined. In other words, this Reddit army could really come after you. So this is truly a new and unique risk for hedge fund managers. Now, as we go through this segment, I want you to really ask yourselves what the value is of hedge funds shorting certain stocks. What kind of benefit does that provide to society or to small businesses or 
businesses in general, right? What is the point here? Because if the argument is that the stock market isn't just a giant casino, well, then the types of bets and trades that are being made should have some value to society, right? But instead, shorting the market or shorting certain stocks uh, does nothing more than provide an opportunity for the capital, the people who own the capital, uh, to get that money to work for them more, right? So they just make more profit off of doing something that actually does have some pretty negative um, impact on society. And I'll explain that in even more detail a little later. But Wall Street Bets decided to expand the strategy to other companies, GameStop, Blockbuster, Bed Bath & Beyond. I mean, this is making me incredibly nostalgic. AMC. It's like some kids remembered their favorite places in the mall 20 years ago and decided to invest in them, wrote Mike Murphy on Twitter. And it's worth having a deeper discussion and understanding regarding the fury behind what kind of drove this strategy in the first place. The rage and anger that so many people on this subreddit have felt uh, toward this system that has been undeniably rigged against them and certainly rigged in favor of people who are already with tremendous wealth and power. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about that rigged system. Now, CNBC doesn't typically have good conversations about uh, why people are anti-establishment or why financialization is actually pretty awful. Uh, But every once in a while, they'll have a guest on who speaks some truth. Here's Chamath explaining exactly why people are so angry with the establishment. I think that what you're seeing is um, essentially a pushback against the establishment in a really important way. You have a lot of people, and I would encourage anybody who is dismissive of this thing to go into Wall Street Bets and actually just read the forums. And I think that you're going to see three kinds of posts. The first kind of content are a lot of people doing some incredible fundamental diligence on companies, trying to think about long-term value. And in my opinion, many of them are doing as good and, frankly, a better job than a lot of hedge fund analysts that I work with. That's number one. The second are a lot of people who believe that, you know, coming out of 2008, what happened was Wall Street took an enormous amount of risk and they left retail as the bag holder. And a lot of these kids were in grade school and high school when that happened. They lost their homes. Their parents lost their jobs. And they've always wondered, like, why did those folks get bailed out for taking enormous amounts of risk and nobody helped and showed up to help my family? He's absolutely right about that. In fact, uh, the topic of bailouts is a common one on this subreddit. Uh, one user on Wall Street Bet said this, we don't have billionaires to bail us out when we mess up our portfolio risk and a position goes against us. We can't go on TV and make attempts to manipulate millions to take our side of the trade. If we mess up as bad as they did, we're wiped out. And that comment is absolutely true. Uh, so let's take a quick trip back to 2008 as the mortgage crisis was underway, as people were being pushed out of their homes, foreclosed, and as uh, the same Wall Street firms that got us in that mess in the first place were getting massive bailouts. Now, the 2008 mortgage crisis led to a world of pain for ordinary people who ended up losing nearly half of their retirement savings and their homes. Now, it wasn't just that these banks were giving out toxic 
mortgages that people would then later default on. What they were doing was bundling those mortgages up into something known as mortgage-backed securities, which were then traded uh, in the markets. And so there were people who uh, were unfortunately invested in those toxic mortgage-backed securities. And once the economy collapsed, that's when pensions and retirement accounts were impacted negatively. Now, uh, when it comes to those foreclosures, by September of 2010, 23% of U.S. homes were underwater, meaning that people owed more on them than what they were actually worth. And this did lead to a massive wave of foreclosures. For instance, things got so bad in Miami-Dade County that the area was called the Repo Riviera. Watch. We have 110,000 properties for sale in South Florida today, 55,000 foreclosures, 19,000 bank-owned properties, 68% of the available inventory is in some form of distress. They need someone to clean it up. What's the name of your company? It's called Condo Vultures Realty. What does that mean? That in times of distress, in times of uh, downturn, there's opportunity. And, um, you know, vultures are clean up the mess. A lot of people seem to think they kill, but they don't actually kill, they clean. The killing in Miami was done by the developers back when it seemed that the party would never end. They sold hyperinflated condos at what amounted to real estate orgies, sales parties for invited guests who were armed with Option Arm and Alte loans. There were red ropes out outside. They had hired cameramen and they had hired photographers to almost set the scene of a paparazzi. They were hiring fake paparazzi to, to make the customers feel like they were special. You were selling a lifestyle. What role did these exotic mortgages play, these Alt-A's and the Option R's? They were essential. They were necessary. Without the Alt-A or Option R mortgage, this boom never would have occurred. It never would have occurred because without the Alt-A's and the Option R's, many buyers never would have qualified for a loan. The banks and the brokers were getting their money up front in fees. So the more they wrote, the more they made. And it was an absolute disaster. Uh, just so you know, uh, the option arm mortgages would give uh, the borrower several different options on how much they would pay for their mortgage every month. And if they chose the cheapest option, as many people did, what they didn't realize was that that amount covered 0% of their principal and uh, didn't cover all of the interest that they were supposed to pay in their payment. And so as a result, their payments would balloon to astronomical levels to the point where people weren't able to pay their monthly mortgage. As a result, people were foreclosed on, people lost their homes. And what happened to the banks? What happened to uh, these what happened to these financial institutions that uh, committed fraud in many cases, but more importantly, did not disclose what these mortgages and the terms associated with these mortgages entailed? Well, the banks needed a bailout because when these people default on their loans, the banks are unable to collect payment. And so what did the government do in response to this absolute disaster? Let's take a look. I was not surprised by the, the public backlash because a year after we spent a trillion plus dollars, people are still going to feel worse. And all they see is that there's a whole bunch of money going to the folks who perpetrated some of these terrible things. Financial crises are often followed by populist reaction, but 
I think it's important to understand, though, that there's some very long-term trends in the United States, including the stagnation of wages, the reduction in upward mobility for people, lack of opportunity. There's a whole number of things which have contributed to the present moment. Financial crisis didn't help that, but it obviously exacerbated some underlying tensions in the United States. Two of AIG's former CEOs were grilled about a retreat where only a week after being bailed out by taxpayers, its executives spent $440,000 on oceanfront rooms, rounds of golf, and trips to the resort spa and salon. They were getting their manicures, their facials, their pedicures, and their massages while the American people were, were footing the bill. How do you not feel absolute rage about that, especially if you're one of the ordinary Americans who unfortunately had one of those toxic loans, found themselves underwater, and then later had their home foreclosed on? Now, in 2009, the United States had uh, nearly 3 million foreclosed properties. That's a 21% increase from 2008 and a 120% increase from 2007. And by the way, that bailout for Wall Street infuriated so many people that they actually did organize, they did mobilize, and we saw protests not just throughout the country, we saw protests throughout the world, and it was referred to as Occupy Wall Street. Now, in New York, as these demonstrators were being forced out of Zuccotti Park, which is where they were occupying, uh, the Wall Street bigwigs celebrated and mocked them. And this video has gotten quite a bit of attention on Reddit. Let's take a look. They also threw some job applications at the demonstrators in Zuccotti Park as they were being forced out of the area. So uh, you can imagine that those types of instances are memorable for people, to say the least. And if you read one of these open letters in the subreddit Wall Street Bets, you'll see that that resentment has been festering for good reason. One user wrote this. When that crisis hit our family, we were able to keep our little house, but we lived off of pancake mix and powdered milk and beans and rice for a year. Ever since then, my parents have kept a food storage and they keep it updated and fresh. Do you know what tomato soup made out of school cafeteria ketchup packets tastes like? My friends got to find out. And the open letter also addresses Melvin Capital, a hedge fund, which is certainly part of the disgusting system that led to so much pain and suffering, not just in 2008, but for years after that, the type of speculative uh, Wall Street casino type behavior. The user writes to Melvin Capital, you're a firm who makes money off of exploiting a company and manipulating markets and media to your advantage. Your continued existence is a sharp reminder that the ones in charge of so much hardship during the 08 crisis were not punished. Your ilk were bailed out and rewarded for terrible and illegal financial decisions that negatively changed the lives of millions. So as you can imagine, watching the demise of a hedge fund like Melvin Capital, a hedge fund that was shorting a company like GameStop, which no doubt has some nostalgic value to uh, millennial Redditors, uh, you can understand why this story was thrilling for so many. 
Now, it was one of the rare times where it appeared that the powerless worked together collectively to make greedy hedge funds bleed literally billions of dollars. Now, as a a member of the left, like we shouldn't see this as the way we win, right? This isn't what we want. We don't want manipulation. We don't want financialization, right? This whole system is corrupt. This whole system is pretty disgusting. And even when it comes to the Wall Street bets side, there were some hedge funds that were able to benefit from this. Uh, but in the meantime, the idea of people working together, small investors working together uh, to basically push for and successfully achieve the demise of a uh, hedge fund is thrilling. It's exciting. And you can understand why so many people have been paying attention to this story. Now, uh, one thing to keep in mind about capitalism is that as soon as you do something that effectively holds uh, the holders of capital accountable well, the system will run interference and make sure to protect these hedge funds. And that's exactly what happened. Apps like Robinhood stopped its users from trading GameStop, AMC, and other Reddit, they're referred to as YOLO picks. A notification popped up telling Robinhood users that they could close their position on GameStop stock, uh, but they can't buy any additional shares. And by the way, uh, Robinhood did confirm that they were doing this through a blog post where they wrote, we continuously monitor the markets and make changes where necessary. In light of recent volatility, we are restricting transactions for certain securities to position closing only. We also raised, raised margin requirements for certain securities. And, you know, included in that you had BlackBerry, Bed Bath & Beyond, Express, all sorts of companies um, that were uh, being shorted by these hedge funds. Uh, Also, several large trading platforms temporarily halted trading on the affected stocks. On Wednesday of this week, uh, the New York Stock Exchange halted trading of GameStop and AMC, and Canada's trading regulator halted BlackBerry. Uh, TD Ameritrade restricted users from trading GameStop, AMC, and other stocks, but was not specific about a timeline. And here's what the notification looked like for people who were trading on TD Ameritrade. And so there's also some indication that uh, Robinhood went out of its way to further manipulate the market on behalf of these hedge funds by selling shares on behalf of its small investors. Uh, so you might have seen some of these posts on social media where users took a screenshot and um, basically revealed to the world that their shares were being sold without their consent. And by the way, there were even politicians who very transparently uh, said that they wanted to uh, run interference and, and stop these Redditors from doing what they were doing. Secretary of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, William Galvin, even suggested that platforms should halt trading for an entire month for the affected stocks. And in response to all of this, a class action lawsuit has been filed against Robinhood. Uh, this was first mentioned on Twitter. First class action against Robinhood just filed in Manhattan federal court hours after app restricted individual retail investors from buying GameStop shares. Plaintiffs allege illegal market manipulation while Wall Street Bets users denounce the app. And this is what the lawsuit looks like. Uh, the most relevant part is, of course, the second bullet point there that mentions that Robinhood purposefully, willfully, and knowingly 
removed the stock GME from its trading platform in the midst of an unprecedented stock rise, thereby deprived retail investors of the ability to invest in the open market and manipulating the open market. And that brings us to the final part of this discussion, and that is the criticisms toward Wall Street bets for manipulating the market, as if market manipulation isn't something that's been taking place for decades. Market manipulation has been a strategy uh, used by the rich to benefit the rich. Um, And so as the New York Times points out, um, when it comes to Robinhood, uh, the company's primary customers are not its users, but actually other financial institutions. Just last month, the Securities and Exchange Commission fined Robinhood $65 million for trying to keep that income stream hidden. So what people didn't know in the beginning of this story was how hedge funds were actually working with Robinhood uh, by buying data of these small investors who use Robinhood to trade. And then they use that data to make decisions of their own, decisions that ended up being incredibly lucrative. The world's largest asset manager, for instance, BlackRock, whose 13% stake in GameStop may have delivered a $2.4 billion windfall and happened to find itself on the winning side of the GameStop trade. By Wednesday, the private equity giant Silver Lake had gained $284 million from AMC mania, and rich people own a vast majority of stocks anyway. So yes, the David and Goliath narrative is an appealing one because so many people want to see consequences uh, for Wall Street, consequences that our lawmakers have refused to really implement. And you should also compare uh, the reactions that we saw from to progressive members of our Senate. Uh, Why don't we start off with Bernie Sanders and his reaction to all of this? This is the correct reaction. The business model of Wall Street is, is fraud. Again, let me repeat that. The business model of Wall Street is fraud. Financialization is a huge problem that needs to be addressed because that is the root of the problem here. Elizabeth Warren's response, though, left much to be desired. Casino-like swings in stock prices of GameStop reflect wild levels of speculation that don't help GameStop's workers or customers and could lead to market instability. Today, I told the SEC to explain what exactly it's doing to prevent market manipulation. And while, to be fair, Senator uh, Warren has mentioned uh, the market manipulation done by the rich and the powerful in the past— For her to immediately spring into action because of what's happening with a subreddit is, um, I'll be generous and just say disappointing, Uh, but I would go further than that. Uh, Because the truth is market manipulation has been aided and abetted by our federal government. Let's focus on the Federal Reserve, for instance, which just pumps money into failing banks and failing corporations to prop them up. This practice, which really exploded uh, after the 2008 economic collapse, is called quantitative easing. And this is what it is. The United States Central Bank has pledged unlimited financial assets or asset purchases to sustain market liquidity, increasing its balance sheet from $4.2 trillion in February to $7 trillion today. 
While the vast majority of these purchases have been limited to U.S. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, the Fed's pledge to bolster the corporate bond market has been enough to spur a frenzy among investors for bonds and stocks. So the actions of our federal government um, has uh, led to artificial inflation. Uh, The Federal Reserve has bought has not bought stocks as part of its financial stimulus programs, but its near-zero interest rates and credit support for large swaths of corporate America have driven yield-hungry investors back to the equity market. So this is part of the bailout system. We saw quite a bit of it um, in the beginning of this pandemic, where ordinary Americans had to sit around and wait for Congress to pass any relief through the CARES Act. In the meantime, the Federal Reserve is like, we're going to make it rain. We're just going to print this money. We're going to hand it over to these banks. We're going to hand it over to these failing companies. um, And we're going to prop them up. And it's incredibly frustrating to see this happen more and more as uh, the solution for the failures of financialization and capitalism, uh, not just here in the United States, but across the world. Since 2000, for instance, the 500 large companies that make up the Standard and Poor's 500 stock index have spent $8.3 million buying their own stock to boost its price, which, by the way, is also another form of manipulation. Over half their profits over the period and equal to almost 20% of business investment over the two decades. And so when you hear this argument about how it's all about free market capitalism, it's supply and demand, supply and demand doesn't apply to this system where, again, you have the Federal Reserve offering up cheap money to these companies, uh, when you have these massive tax cuts, which are sold to the American people as a way in which we can create new jobs or increase wages. Of course, that never actually happens. What ends up happening with those tax cuts is whatever money the wealthy and these corporations save from those tax cuts, uh, gets invested into stocks. They buy shares of their own company, thus artificially inflating those shares. Uh, And it was something that was very apparent after Trump managed to pass his tax cuts for the wealthy in 2017. That was when he slashed the corporate tax rate from 37% to 21%. And did they create new jobs with those tax savings? I don't know. Let's take a look. When our businesses pay less in taxes, they reinvest that money into their companies. But according to the nonpartisan Congressional Research Service, that's not what happened. The CRS studied the effects of the new tax law a year and a half after it passed, and they found very little growth in wage rates among ordinary workers. What they did find was evidence for a record-breaking amount of stock buybacks with $1 trillion announced by the end of 2018. Doesn't seem like they created many jobs with that, did they? But again, they did buy shares of their own stocks. And why is this system in place anyway? Like, why do we keep dealing with this failing system that uh, picks winners and losers, that allows individuals who are already incredibly rich and powerful to continue manipulating the markets without any government intervention. Well, corruption is a problem, and we do have conflicts of interest 
uh, among the very people who are allegedly serving our best interests, our lawmakers who consistently vote in ways that continue to deregulate the market, uh, who continue to provide all sorts of tax cuts and benefits to the wealthy. And one really good example of this is House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat, uh, who claims that she really does worry about uh, being able to feed the children in America. Uh, But when it comes to Wall Street regulation, she has a vested interest in keeping things deregulated. Let's watch. I wanted to ask you why you and your husband back in March of 2008 um, accepted and participated in a very large IPO deal from Visa. At a time there was major uh, legislation affecting their credit card companies making its way through the um, through the house. And did you consider that to be a conflict of interest? I don't know what your point is of your question. Is there some point that you want to make with that? Well, I I guess what I'm asking is, do you think it's all right for uh, a speaker uh, to accept uh, a very preferential and favorable uh, stock deal? Well, we didn't. You participated in the IPO. Well, I have made And at the time you were Speaker of the House. You don't think it was a conflict of interest or had the appearance of a conflict of interest? No, it only has appearance if you decide that you're going to have elaborate on a false premise. Absolutely awful, and it's not a false premise. Uh, We also learned that early on in the pandemic, before the American people were informed on the severity of coronavirus, our Senate lawmakers had a private uh, briefing where they were given all the intel about the severity of the pandemic. And guess what several of those lawmakers did? They turned around and they sold stocks that they knew would be negatively impacted by the pandemic, and they bought shares of companies that were tied to telecommunications or any type of uh, business or technology that's needed to work from home. Uh, so that type of behavior runs rampant in government. The entire system uh, that we're seeing right now in Wall Street is, in fact, rigged against uh, the little guy. And while it might be thrilling and exciting to see the demise of a hedge fund or two, the real question here is, what are we going to do to completely throw out this system? Not reform it, throw it out. Because the fact of the matter is, this is not a system that has benefited people the way that it's been sold to the public. Uh, There should be no reason for allowing hedge funds to short certain stocks. There shouldn't be a system in place that allows the Federal Reserve to just pump money into failing companies and allow them to prop these companies up. And there shouldn't be a system in place that continues to provide tax cuts for the rich so they can then turn around and buy shares of their own stocks in order to uh, artificially inflate the value and pay themselves out later. This is a huge problem, and it goes far beyond what I've seen discussed uh, in the mainstream press. And I thank you guys for giving me the opportunity to do a lengthy segment explaining why. No, that was uh, far better than Tom Friedman's uh, summary (laughs) of the events of this week, um, which is just someone look it up. Someone look up Tom Friedman um, and his reaction to all this because it was it was beautiful. Um, Anna, this this was great. I mean, I think I mean, 
there's so much to talk about. Maybe we should, should we get to Corbin and then maybe discuss all this stuff after? What do you think about that? I, I would love to. I would love to. Okay. So let's okay, do great. it. Um, it's the moment you guys have all been waiting for. So yes. we won't make you wait any longer. Um, joining us now is Jeremy Corbyn, a member of parliament and also the former leader of the Labour Party. And he's the recent founder of the Peace and Justice Project. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I think you're on mute. You're muted is the sentence of uh, 2020 and I guess now 2021 as well. Absolutely. It's very common. <laughs> Anna, you beat me to it. I was going to say this is the there word of the decade. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sorry I wasn't uh, unmuted quick enough. I'm in the Peace and Justice Project office now on a Saturday evening. I'm Myself and Lara are the only people in the whole building, and it's really strange being in an office on a, on a Saturday evening when outside is all quiet, but there we are. Anyway, thank you for mm. inviting me on. It's really a pleasure to see you, and I enjoyed the discussion you were just having about um, Wall Street fiddling and Wall Street fiddlers, as we call them over <laughs> here. Well, you know, that's actually a perfect uh, segue. Uh, why don't we start with that very topic? I mean, what are your thoughts on uh, what transpired in, in the markets this week with Wall Street bets? Well, it, I think the way you summed it up was very good because what you pointed out was that uh, these people knew the corona crisis was coming they got a pretty good idea of how serious it was going to be and they worked out that a lockdown would mean people would work from home therefore telecoms is going to become much more important delivery systems going to become much more important and uh, that's where to put their money there's also been a lot of um, in britain anyway i don't know about across your side of the atlantic of um, big store groups closing down and a lot of asset stripping of property at the present time of um, shops, big shops often that have closed down altogether. And of course, a lot of smaller shops that are unlikely to reopen again. And so there's a, already a quite devastating effect on local economies all over the country. And we've argued that the if the government is requiring people to stay and work at home, I can understand that, and uh, that's obviously the correct response in order to stop the spread of the virus. But if, as a government, you're saying people must not go out to work and they cannot work from home, as many cannot, then you've got to provide them with the wherewithal to survive. And I must say, we've had some fairly bizarre conversations with the Prime Minister about this. When, uh, when I was leader of the opposition last year, I had one meeting with him with a number of colleagues and he then told me that all everybody got to work from home. And I said, what about the self-employed? And he said, well, they can work from home as well. I said, well, it's not much point saying to a self-employed plumber, electrician or bricklayer, you've got to work from home. And he said, good point. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're not necessarily dealing with a government that's um, on top of the subject or the most prepared to deal with this uh, this crisis by any means. But it has exposed the heroes and the villains within our society. In Britain, to me, the heroes are the hospital workers, the care workers, the delivery workers, the cleaners the transport workers, all of those people that have put their lives on the line in order to help others. 
The villains have been those that have speculated and those companies that have been handed massive contracts to inadequately provide personal protective equipment or set up a trace and uh, track system which simply didn't work and billions have been handed out um, in private health contracts by our government and so our response has always been there has to be a public response but the other side of it is a very interesting political response and i think from the way you were talking the same thing is happening in the usa that we've got what we call mutual aid groups within our communities in my own constituency where i am at the moment there are there is one community aid group for each ward and there are eight wards in a population of less than a hundred thousand people and um, each of those uh, mutual aid groups collects food delivers food gives support to people gives mental health counseling gives financial advice and gives all that kind of support and it's been a coming together of the millennial generation that didn't think these things were ever going to happen to them middle-aged people who thought they were okay and then discovered they weren't, and older people who feel very alone and very isolated. And so whilst there are unbelievable levels of stress amongst many people in many homes, there is also a rejuvenation of community politics. And I think that's something that we're all going to have to reckon with in the future. And I think that if there is a positive to come out of that, there is a, that is the positive. But the other negative is it's the poorest people, it's the black minority ethnic community that disproportionately died as a result of this. And globally, the supply of the vaccine is unbelievably, grotesquely unfair, where high prices are being charged by big pharma for vaccines to poorer countries. And as the Director General of the World Health Organization pointed out last week, it's what he described as a moral scandal that uh, the poorest people in the poorest countries will be looking at a vaccine in two, three years' time, if they're lucky. And so it's exposed an awful lot about inequality and injustice in our society. And I'm sure in the USA, if you look across the piece, you'll find that the death rate is disproportionate amongst the black and minority ethnic community and in the big cities of your country. Hmm. Um, Mr. Corbyn, uh, not to uh, make the moment awkward, but I was wondering if you could maybe pull your camera down a little bit because uh, you have a lot of headroom and we want to make sure our audience there can we see go. you clearly. You, you know what? I, I read your mind for the second time. I was about to do that. But I was trying to work out how to do it on screen without looking a bit odd. And if you still wave to somebody off screen, please come and move the camera. That looks even worse. <laughs> well, uh, you look you look great now, <laughs> so it's all, awesome. all thank good. you very much. I uh, cut my hair especially, but we're not allowed to go to the barbers, so there we go. Oh uh, well, I mean, I, honestly, I couldn't tell. It looks like it looks professionally done uh, to me. Um, um, so I, I, I want to ask you about because I think that um, one of the reasons why you and Bernie Sanders have resonated so much with younger people in the last few years. I mean, it seems anachronistic in some way, no, no offense. Um, but one of the reasons is because you guys have so much experience and have been on the front lines of these struggles for so long, including in the sort of dark days of, you know, the 80s and 90s for the left and, and things like that. And, and, and you know, it's, it's just wild to think that a, a labor leader in the 21st century was, you know, you were in Chile in 1969 uh, before, uh, visiting uh, Allende and, and, and all the stuff that they were doing there. Um, what does that 
what does that experience teach you and how does that inform the way you currently interpret the current crisis that we're in? My determination is to build a society that's fit for the next generation because what we've seen over the past um, 30, 40 years has been the growth of um, free market economics from the 1970s, Chicago School, um, the Reagan campaign in California before he was elected, uh, Proposition 13, you probably remember it, to cut taxes. Mm -hmm. Um, The same thing resonated in the Conservative Party in Britain. And so the kind of post-war consensus of um, properly funded public services, maybe not as adequate as they could be, but nevertheless, the principle of properly funded public services and graduated taxation, where the very richest paid the most, was something that was blown apart by Reagan in the USA and by Thatcher in Britain. And um, as somebody who had been in the labor movement all of my life, and um, was a union organiser in the 1970s. I remember when the Conservatives started talking about privatisation, I was at a union meeting of um, cleaners in a school, because that was the union I organised, it was the National Union of Public Employees. And um, I was talking about the horrors of what this Tory party might do if they ever got into office. And a hand went up and said, um, Jeremy, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, sure, what is it? She said, what's privatisation? <laughs> because it wasn't, it wasn't in their can, as we say. You just weren't thinking about that. And um, we certainly found out what it was a very short time later when <laughs> Thatcher was elected in Britain, Reagan in the USA, and we went on this binge of destroying public services, destroying public assets, selling them off for a song, and um, the profiteers moved in. And Thatcher changed the agenda from being the politics of values to the politics of money. And so she destroyed large portions of our manufacturing industry in order to create a sort of money economy where you worship money, you invested money to make money and all the Mm. sort of notions of the hedge funds and so on. And um, that has been the story ever since. And I've got the utmost respect for Bernie, Bernie Sanders, and the squad and all the um, radical movements in the USA that have organized in communities against poverty, that have organized people to stand up against that. And I remember the Occupy movement and all that went with it. So I think it's um, fascinating the times that we're in now where we've got in Britain, a sadly, a conservative government elected on a promise of um, doing an effective trade deal with the European Union that would protect workers' rights and environmental rights, whilst at the same time trying to do a deal with Donald Trump, who was looking in exactly the opposite direction. And we now have the Biden administration that's just come in. And I hope that they are going to reverse the trend that Trump set in place. Now, for all the sort of stuff one can say about Trump, the headline figure that should be looked at is this fake populism of Trump, this fake love for the working class of Trump. In reality, he presided over four years of unbelievably rapid transfer of power and wealth 
from the poorest to the richest. And that is exactly what his sort of free market agenda is about. Absolutely. Um, I love that you mentioned Prop 13. It's it's actually incredible uh, that Prop 13 is on anyone's radar because it was a proposition in California that had devastating results, uh, especially for our education system, passed in 1978 and uh, capped the uh, property taxes uh, for California homes to a little over 1%. And that cut funding for education so much that uh, the Los Angeles Unified School District went from being the top school district in the country to now being um, one of the worst school districts in the country. So thank you for mentioning that because it's a good example of how um, these little ballot initiatives that some might think uh, have no impact on their personal lives actually ends up having a massive impact on the quality of social services and public programs that are offered to um, to people. And at the time, uh, it sounded totally obscure and a bit niche. I mean, what are you all bothered about Proposition 13 for? Well, yeah. <laughs> Look at the yeah. effects. Yeah. Absolutely. Just devastating effects. So I actually um, want to ask you a follow-up about what you just mentioned regarding uh, Trump's fake populism and what he actually did implement once he had power, uh, which, again, was a, a, an acceleration of that uh, transfer of wealth uh, from you know the middle class to the already wealthy. Uh, what I'm concerned about is, you know, during the New Deal era, we, we were able to uh, pass policies that were desperately needed, the New Deal, uh, because there was um, organized labor that had power pushing for it. There was an organized left. Right now, though, uh, at least in the United States, I can say with certainty that that organized uh, labor doesn't exist. Labor has no power. Um, And I'm wondering what the left can do to prevent like an actual right wing fascist Uh, from taking power? Well, the New Deal era is, to me, absolutely fascinating because at at one level you could describe New Deal as saving American capitalism. Um, I mean, there was an element of that in it, for sure. But there was also the um, flowering of an artistic um, talent across the country a flowering of working class culture and an extolling of it. And there's a fascinating um, museum and exhibition in San Francisco I saw a couple of years ago, which went through many of the murals of Diego Rivera and others. But it was all about the way in which um, there was investment all across the country. There was that sort of hope and the kind of Norman Rockwell paintings and so on that gave some idea of the uh, of what workers could achieve together and how the society could be made much fairer. I mean, there were many areas of the um, Roosevelt years, the FDI years and the New Deal that one should um, look at with a great deal of criticism. Lynching went on. Racism was not tackled at all. Black people were denied the vote. Um, the abuse of um, civil rights by many people and the rhetoric uh, against the communists and communist party at that time going through to the McCarthyite era after the war. I mean, the life of Paul Robeson and others is an interesting um, example of the way they were treated. But I say that because I think the analysis of our own history is a very important thing to do. 
likewise, the post-war Labour government in Britain quite brilliantly brought in the National Health Service, a planning system that was much fairer, that developed a lot of council housing and was immense in its achievements on the domestic agenda. It was very different on the international stage, with the exception of the independence of India that was forced on them anyway. They continued with colonial wars and um, the government actually secretly developed nuclear weapons at that time. And so, you know, I think we have to analyse without rose-tinted glasses the period of that time. Now, you say um, organised labour is very weak. Yes, it has been weakened by um, legislation, legislation in your country and in mine, but it's also become much stronger in certain areas. I'll give you an example. In the last um, couple of months, British Airways, major airline, major employer in Britain, wanted to fire almost its entire workforce and rehire them on worse conditions. They failed. They were defeated by the power of the union and they had to um, negotiate with the unions in the proper manner. And so I think the way forward for the left is that we use the power of social media and communication such as we're doing now because i don't imagine that fox news would give this amount of time for this kind of discussion just just a thought um <laughs> we do have the ability to communicate with each other and that has speeded up during the corona crisis i mean i'm doing meetings in this very room almost every day with friends in India, in South Africa, in all over Latin America, in your country, and so on. We have internationalized a lot of what we're doing. And I do think that we've got to be active in the support of people who are campaigning against the principles of free market economics and what it does to people's lives. And so the support that we should be mobilizing, and I'm sure you are, for the Indian farmers at the present time is very important because their struggle against the idea that uh, a price support system to give a base a base income to farmers growing basic crops in India will be removed, will mean that um, US agribusiness and others can then move in and take over, as they did when the um, structure adjustment programs were imposed on the, on the poorest countries in Africa and Latin America. So. We've got to organize in communities and in solidarity with each other and also support the principle of what trade unions are about. And so whilst, yes, the levels of union membership in the USA are sadly probably somewhere near his historic low, I still think it's right to spend a lot of time and energy in building union membership in new areas because manufacturing industry is a different animal altogether. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was um, last year, I was visiting a highly efficient um, uh, tin plate rolling mill uh, in Britain, which um, put tin, uh, tin coating on steel sheets. And there was hardly anybody there. There was uh, about two dozen much older workers who had known, been in the steel industry all their lives, um, half a dozen young apprentices, and that was about it. Um, it is manufacturing industry is very highly recognized where the labor intensity has moved to 
is in care, is in health, is in public services, and is in the new economy of delivery workers and delivery riders. They need to be in a union. And at the moment, there are uh, people who are trying to organize in Amazon. There was the Global Day for Amazon, which Progressive International got behind and lots of us got behind. I think it's those kind of campaigns that the left have got to get involved in. To win, you've got to win the cultural war in the communities in the first place, to give people hope and not the idea that they have no power. And that is where Bernie and I are absolutely at one. And obviously, I'm very sorry that he didn't make it through to um, being the presidential candidate. And um, he and I exchanged very nice messages. He's a good man. You know, we, he is a good man. We love him. We love him very much here. But, uh, we, you know, we've covered the, the Indian farmers uh, struggle on this show. We've covered the Amazon union drive. There's also a, a union drive at Google. Other my questions the media are directed at you. <laughs> No, no, no. Obviously, no. no I'm, not, I'm not trying to. Uh, I'm not trying to uh, sort of defend ourselves. But um, I, I guess I, I, what I was saying is that I was struck by when we cover those things, which are just not covered in the media at all in the United States, um, at all. Like you, know, you can you can turn on you can watch CNN for an entire week, like the Ludovico technique, and and you will not see um, any of those things covered in CNN one second. Um, and I'm struck by. The response that we always get is is just very inspiring. People people feel those connections kind of instinctively, and I want to. I just wanted to see like how because there's the 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 common conception is that oh you while you do have to work um, and and uh, with people in their communities and win their struggles at home, how do you do that while also linking it to all these struggles from around the world? Not just going on today, but historically, because I think that that's a, a it, it gives people a sense that they're part of something bigger and it can be very inspiring. Whatever politicians may say, in reality, all economies are linked in some way. Because you, in, you import materials to make things, you need places to export them to. And in the case of um, Britain, there is no choice but to be a... Um, a trading nation and uh, that means that you, you have to have some bearing on what goes on in other places and so um, recently we had a dispute at uh, Rolls-Royce which is a major employer this was the um, aero division uh, aero engine division of Rolls-Royce and they were trying to close a factory in Barnaldswick in the northwest of Britain in Lancashire in order to transfer some of the work to Spain and some to Singapore, uh, and at the same time, basically get rid of a workforce, that a very highly skilled workforce that had loyally worked for Rolls-Royce for 50 years. It's, it's a very long-standing factory. Um, they had a, a strike um, for a whole long time. The strike was very much based in the community. And the picket line became a place where people would leave food donations for the food banks for the poor people in the town as well as for those on strike. They won. They won the strike. They won the argument. The factory stays open. They forced uh, negotiations on Rolls-Royce. It was obviously a big international dimension to the dispute. And so when you talk of um, workers' rights protection, if you don't hardwire them into trade agreements then what we're doing is taking part in the diminution or damaging of the rights of workers elsewhere. 
if you force into a trade agreement that you cannot buy products that have been made by child labor, by slave labor, that are environmentally damaging, pouring, if they're making clothes, pouring chlorine into rivers, for example, and there's many, many other examples, then you're not going to make any progress. So we do have to be international about it. And um, yeah, it's if you just turn up at a local meeting that's concerned about um, the closure of a school or a hospital or is campaigning for an improvement in some local facility, and you're very patronised and give them a lecture about there are other people in an even worse situation elsewhere in the world, <laughs> you won't get a hearing and people won't take you very seriously. If you take seriously the issue that's in front of you, of that community that's faced with it, then you will get a hearing on all the other issues as well. You've got to mm. meet people where they are mm -hmm. and develop those debates and those arguments. And um, mm. surely this time of all times, as we hopefully come out of the corona crisis, there's going to be the big debate. Are we going to pay for corona by slashing public spending, by increasing taxation on the poorest and in the middle classes. I realise middle classes means totally different things on both sides of the Atlantic. I find that strange, but there we are. Um, and at the same time, not put uh, windfall taxes on those that have made an absolute fortune. They're like war profiteers, actually, these people yeah. that have made a great deal out of, out of corona. Um, or are we going to say this is the time to invest in housing, invest in schools, invest in jobs, invest in the future um, and run a budget deficit to achieve that? I see nothing wrong with that whatsoever. And the strange thing is I was lambasted just over a year ago for proposing to spend substantial sums of money on ending university fees, on investment in housing, public ownership of rail, mail and water, and free broadband for everybody. I was accused by one of the right-wing papers, the Daily Mail, of promoting broadband communism. I'm still trying to get the concept <laughs> of broadband communism, but I remember you could do a Christmas quiz, what is broadband communism? Fascinating, <laughs> fascinating idea. And I was condemned saying this is ludicrous, giving everybody a computer, giving everybody access to it. A year later, there's Tory MPs and the right wing getting up saying, well, everybody needs access to the internet. Hmm. You know, things hmm. come full circle in the end, you know. They do. And they so do. I think we've got that. But the two other things I may mention um, of international solidarity work. This year is um, COP26. And I'm very pleased that one of the first things Biden did was to say he would sign it, re-sign up to Paris. I was at I was at the Paris Climate Change Accords. I watched the proceedings there. It was fascinating. It was interesting. The significance of Paris was that all countries were there, and they did agree on a um, net zero 2050, which um, uh, very few are anywhere near achieving. But they did agree on it. COP26 comes up this year in um, Glasgow, in Scotland, and um, unless we actually agree on net zero by 2030, and it's not just about CO2, carbon dioxide emissions and global warming, it's also about global pollution, and it's also mm. about biodiversity. And unless we sign up to all of those protocols, then the next generation 
is going to live in a very, very different and much more dangerous world. And so to me, the environmental movements are absolutely crucial. And again, a green revolution, a real green revolution won't be like the steam revolution and the electricity uh, revolution and the super tech revolution, all of which move power and wealth to the richest. This would be one that would move it in absolutely the opposite direction. And so we spend a lot of time developing a whole green industrial revolution strategy. Um, and I'm very proud of what we achieved there. And one of the four strands of work that we're doing um, from the Peace and Justice Project is on green industrial revolution and campaigning. And if I may say so, one other international area we got to mention is this. War, peace, justice. The UN General Assembly voted for a um, global ban on nuclear weapons. The vast majority of the world's countries feel quite comfortable living without nuclear weapons. The majority of the world's population almost could live in nuclear-free areas. But it's a minority of the world's countries, basically the um, declared nuclear weapon states plus uh, India, Pakistan and Israel that have nuclear weapons. Um, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty is coming up. I think this is a time to move very fast on international justice for it. And I was pleased that both the US Congress and the Russian Parliament agreed to extend the START Treaty by a year. That's got to be a positive, but it's not the mm. end of it. We've got to move on from there. We cannot now, with all the problems of the world, go into a global arms race. <laughs> it's utterly crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I want to switch gears a little bit uh, and talk about... Um, you know, what it's like to be part of a party that uh, has leadership that disagrees with you fundamentally on a number of issues, because uh, there are certainly parallels uh, between the Labour Party uh, in the UK and the Democratic Party here in the United States. And in the US, there has been um, this raging debate. It's been going on uh, since 2016 regarding the inability to really uh make change from within the Democratic Party. So there are, you know, people who believe that maybe we need to break off and do a third party, which has all sorts of obstacles that stand in the way of actually accomplishing uh, what the left wants to accomplish in this country. Um, but, you know, you have remained in the Labour Party. You've been in the Labour Party since you were a teenager. And, um you never really allowed for the disagreements among uh, labor leaders and yourself to, to push you out of the party. So talk to me about your, your thoughts on that and why it is that you've remained so loyal to the Labour Party. I think it's, um, you've got to be careful of drawing an exact parallel between the Labour Party and the US Democrats. I went to um, Cleveland, Ohio in, uh, I think it was... 95 or 96 there was an attempt to form a u.s labor party and i was a guest at that conference it was absolutely fascinating a lot of people there from all over the usa from unions and mostly people that were in the democratic party usually active in local areas and with support for particular candidates um, and the whole question was the many obstacles in the way of forming a Labour Party on the parallel of the sort of model we've got. The UK Labour Party is 
unique amongst socialist parties in that it was founded by trade unions rather than trade unions being set up by the party. That's quite a big difference. And trade unions have always had a very big role within the Labour Party. And it was set up uh, originally with no local organisation. It was um, uh, such local organisations came was through trades and labour councils, which were local labour activists and trade union activists coming together. Now, it's obviously moved on into a, a political party with individual membership, but it still has union affiliation and um, uh, half the votes at uh, conference come from uh, affiliated trade unions. I joined the Labour Party when I was 16 um, in the 1960s and um, I then at that time, probably my first meeting, disagreed with the um, political but not military support being given by Harold Wilson to the war in Vietnam. Um, but I felt that uh, it was the place to mobilise people, and it was a place to argue for policies. And so I have been in the Labour Party, as you say, all of my life. And disagreeing with others in a political party is not, to me, a badge of shame. Um, as long as you do it in an intelligent way and you are actually putting forward a credible alternative to that which you disagree with, I think it's fair enough. I mean, plenty of people disagreed with me during my time as leader of the Labour Party, um, some of them in a completely unreasonable way, some of them more nuanced. But um, I think it is right to have that debate within a political party. Now, I've got a lot of admiration for the socialist grouping within the US Democrats, and um, we have kept in touch with them. And indeed, I would hope they'll work with us on this project for peace and justice that we've set up, which is a way of not taking over or supplanting campaigns, but supporting them. Now, in Britain, the Labour Party membership rose from 200,000 to, uh, when I uh, stepped down as leader, it reached 600,000 members, the largest it had ever been in history. And uh, I want that membership to be mobilised and to be powerful. Does it mean there's going to be political debates about the direction we go? Yes, of course there does. And you, you should never be afraid of those debates. I just say this, there's no future for left politics that doesn't challenge economic injustice and inequality, social injustice and inequality, and global, global issues that I've mentioned, pandemic, environment mm. and, and wars. That has to be the base on which we do things. Now, I've also, during my political life, been involved in many other campaigns that involve people from other organisations. I was a founder of the Stop the War Coalition in 2001. Uh, this was in response not to Iraq, because Iraq hadn't been thought of at that time. Uh, that was in response to the bombing of Afghanistan by, um, by George Bush, and with the support of Tony Blair. And we felt it was wrong. And so we decided, despite the apparent huge popular support on both sides of the Atlantic for what Bush was proposing to do, with only Barbara Lee in your system voting against it in Congress, um, was to set up the Stop the War Coalition. And I was I supported it, of course, but I was quite sceptical that we'd get much support. So I remember the one of the friend of mine, Chris, 
Chris Nine, who stopped the war, phoned me up and said, oh, Jeremy, we booked the room for the meeting. We booked the big hall at um, Friends House, not Friends House, at um, a smaller hall in Red Lion Square um, in London. And I said, oh, God, that's a bit risky. We might not fill it. And then more and more people kept phoning up and registering. This was not exactly pre-internet, but it wasn't as dominant as it is now. And then we moved to a place called Friends Meeting House on Euston Road, which is much bigger. And um, I went down there after I'd finished my local advice surgery in my constituency, cycled down there, locked up my bike, and there was just thousands and thousands of people all around the building. And we ended up doing five overflow meetings all around the building, in the street and in the park and in lots of anterooms and things before addressing the packed hall of it. And that was the birth of the Stop the War movement against the war in Afghanistan. And then mm. we developed, obviously, um, in opposition to Iraq when we mobilised well over a million people on the streets of London in February, uh, February 2003. And so... That involved people of all kinds of different organisations and peace groups, and it did come together as a massive movement. And I think that has helped to, hasn't stopped all aggression, obviously, it hasn't stopped all wars, but it has helped to change the agenda. And that is the important thing, is change the agenda for debate. But the other area of work that our project is very keen on developing, and this is why we want to work with your good selves, is on media. Because we have a dominant global media by a very small number of companies. Now, I am not, as you probably gathered, a great admirer or fan of Donald Trump. You probably picked that up during this discussion. I don't suppose you two are either. Um, he had his Twitter account removed. Now, I've got no time for Trump. But I think we should think quite carefully about the power of a media corporation in this case, Twitter, think Facebook, etc., to decide who can communicate with who else. Now, that yeah. is actually a very serious and enormous level of power, just as, in the same way, global media through Fox, through well, Murdoch-inspired Fox and others, sets a news agenda and sets news values. And uh, if I can give you one other anecdote, do you mind? Of course. Don't mind at all. I, I got all day. <laughs> News values. I was um, in the Democratic Republic of Congo some years ago visiting. I'd been to refugee camps and I'd been talking to refugees and talking to people who were going through horrendous times because of the grabbing of minerals by um, big companies from the Congo uh, with unbelievable levels of poverty around them. And I was at in Goma and um, there was a plane crash. A plane had sought to take off from the airport. It was probably overloaded. And there was a lava stream from a volcano that had gone across the runway and solidified. And lava is very, very hard. And they had no equipment with which to remove it. So the planes were instructed to make sure they lifted off before they hit the lava stream point on the runway. This plane didn't, it ran over it, it crash landed, it hadn't really taken off, crashed into very poor housing at the end of the runway, which obviously shouldn't have been there. And a lot of people were killed. 
the UN force that was in the area, the peacekeeping force, to their credit, went there straight away and did everything. They were Indian soldiers, went there and did everything they could to help. And then about two or three hours later, I got a phone call from a media source in London saying, oh, Mr. Corbyn, we understand you're in Goma at the moment. Is that correct? I said, yes, I am. We understand there's been a plane crash. They said, yes, it's very tragic. And this guy said, look, to cut to the chase, was anybody killed or injured? I said, yeah. Um, a lot of people have been killed and injured, poor people living in their homes as well as those on the plane. I said, um, he said, have you got any names? Do you know who? I said, no. He said, well, who was really affected? I said, are you really ringing me to check if there's any Europeans or Americans that have been injured? Or are you interested in the effect on poor people in a village at the end of a runway? And he said, well, you know how the news works. We want to know if there was any pe- any Europeans there. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and I, I mean, said, you know, we, see it. we see it in the way all sorts of tragedies yeah. uh, are talked about and covered in the news, especially wars. Uh, when yeah. it has to do with our own um, actions abroad in these um, endless wars. You know, when we hear about casualties, it's uh, far less likely that we'll hear about uh, civilian casualties abroad um, as opposed to, you know, U.S. soldiers who die while, um, you know, in the, you know, in combat. It's just... It's really frustrating. Well, also, the um, numbers of soldiers in the U.S. that committed suicide after Vietnam was greater than the number, I believe, that even died in the Vietnam War. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and I think most Americans are more or less aware of how many American soldiers died in Vietnam, but have no idea how many Vietnamese people were killed in the Vietnam War, let alone Laotian or Cambodian people. Um, they just have no con- like no concept of it, um, just because it's because the media doesn't doesn't cover that at all. Um, it's not part of their news. Uh, I mean, when I go to the U.S., I'm shocked at the numbers of people sleeping on the streets and the number of them who are ex-soldiers. Yeah. Uh, I remember yeah, I, oh, yeah. in, I went to the Senate in 2015 to lobby over Guantanamo, and um, I just met this guy outside a cafe who was begging. I gave him some money and talked to him. And I said, what's your story? What's happened? I just went through it all. I mean, he wasn't particularly of the left. He'd been a soldier all his life. And um, he said, you know, I, I served my country. I did everything I could. And this is how they served me. Yeah. No, it's, it's. I mean, I, we live in, Anne and I both live in LA, which is, you know, the capital of the homelessness crisis here in the United yeah. States. And it's, you know, you see tons of veterans. I mean, tons of veterans. It's it's a shocking percentage. Um well, I want to I want to just end to wrap up. Uh, by the way, thank you for missing Arsenal versus Manchester United. By the way, nil nil full time. It's already it's just, is it nil nil full time? Nil nil full time. Yeah, um, you know, not a, not a bad result. Uh, well, it's just down the road so. from here. Actually, we, we we can almost if there was anybody there, we could have heard the crowd from this office. Right, but um, well, hmm. yeah, it's tough. Um, I'm tempted to ask you about Arsenal, but I I won't. I'm tempted to ask you about Arsenal, but I won't. I don't want to get you in trouble. Um, I want to end because I want to ask you about, you know, this uh, kind of age-old question for the left. I mean, Tony Benn, who I know you're a great admirer of, said in 1979 that a serious socialist strategy must begin with the usual problems of the reformer. We have to run the economic system to protect our people who are locked into it while we change the system. Um, How did your time in the later labor leadership make you think about that? Um, you know, how, how, what should socialists like us do to transform society? We 
obviously looked at this a great deal and John McDonnell as our Treasury spokesperson um, put a huge amount of work into that. Um, the principles behind it were redistribution of power and wealth, investment in manufacturing industry, higher living, a minimum wage to turn into a living wage, um, but above all empowering workers. And so whilst at the headline the uh, issue was my proposals on sorry, our proposals on public ownership, which were the entirety of the railway network, because at the moment there's quite a lot of private enterprise running trains. Um, the Royal Mail, which was privatised and is uh, it was disgraceful the way it was privatised and it should be brought back into public ownership, and the water supply industry. We also proposed um, that... Uh, telecoms through free broadband would have an element of public enterprise in it. We also proposed um, uh, energy, which we would bring the national grid into public ownership and also invest in localised energy as well as um, renewable energy sources. But those were the sort of headlines. But the other side of it was actually more interesting in a sense. It was about local economic forums that would be given power. It was about regional investment banks that would be run by a combination of unions, local economic activists in the sense of people running business in the area and trade unions. And they would decide on the levels of capital and infrastructure investment within those different parts of the UK because there are massive regional imbalances despite it being a quite small country. But there were other things that were very powerful indeed. One was when a company goes under or goes into administration, the workforce as a whole must be given the chance to take over the company with public funding and public support to do so. And we would also fund and empower cooperatives. So, yes, it is reformist, and I fully understand that, but it would be something that would educate and empower people. We would also have um, ended university tuition fees, which at the moment are £9,000 per year, I realise mm. compared to some universities in the USA, that probably sounds quite cheap, but um, yes. I think there is a principle that there should be education free from cradle to grave. And so our proposal was to establish a national education service which would oversee all aspects of education, the principle being that everyone should have free access to education, including adult education, where people who had not achieved what they wanted to or as much as they might have done in school, got the opportunity to go back to college, university, or to fund things like the Open University, which is um, very important as a way of giving people another chance. But it's also about the value, the value of learning. So all of those things, and one of the things that was, um, I mean, some people thought it was a bit niche, but I was very proud of it. We put in there, we would set up a pupil arts premium so that every child in every school, irrespective of their income, could learn a musical instrument in school, experience the theatre whilst in school, and understand the value of poetry, literature and music alongside science, languages, mm. maths, and all the other things. Because what we do in education too often is drive the imagination out of our young people. 
We drive yeah. it out of them by filling them up with tests and exams when we should be mm -hmm. encouraging them to think as widely as they possibly can. I want young people to grow up with hope and with imagination and an understanding yeah. of the rest of the world. And we were very keen to develop all of those things. And we still are doing all of that. We're doing all of that through this project, through community activity and community action. And that begins to change the debate. Labour won in 1945 in Britain, not because of the brilliance of an election campaign at the end of the Second World War, but because of the anger at the way the poorest people were treated during the Great Depression of the 1930s and the brutality mm. of the means test where people lost bits of their furniture or their homes if, uh, because they were deemed to have um, too much and therefore they couldn't um, access national assistance at that time. It was the anger of the brutality of that system and the growth of what was called the Left Book Club, which brought together people of all kinds of left opinion to discuss things and so on, and they became the key activists. And so there are points in history when it might look really bad, but also there are people working away, mobilising, encouraging, and above all, giving hope to people. Surely mm. that is what is so necessary in this world. Absolutely. I love and that. I feel I love incredibly that. hopeful after that answer. <laughs> Absolutely. Me too. And I love, I love, um, you know, your emphasis on um, the arts because I agree with you. I think that uh, that creativity is such an important part of um, inspiring people. And, you know, when we talk about innovation, um, innovation doesn't just simply happen through competition. It happens through uh, people feeling inspired by things and, and having yeah. the ability to kind of think freely. So I, I love that you mentioned that. It's so important. One, one of my favorite poets is uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who right. um, you, I'm sure you're aware of. Oh, he yeah. wrote, um, I mean, he was a strange character in lots of ways, most poets can be. But his, one of his great friends was Humphrey Davy, who developed electricity. And neither saw it odd that one was a poet and one was a scientist. And they crossed, crossed over and talked about each other's interests. And mm. Davy saw inspiration in poetry. And Coleridge saw inspiration in science through poetry. And so mm. you shouldn't always put people in boxes. Because boxes yeah. are not a great place to live. No, no, it's absolutely not. Uh, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, we really appreciate the conversation and uh, our audience absolutely love the conversation. They're hoping that you uh, uh, launch a podcast of your own. I, I saw some of those comments. So, Well, we've got our, our four work streams with the project, one of which is media. And I'm very sure there's, what's going to come out of that is our own podcast. So, but it's not competition with your good selves. It's sharing this thing. It's Absolutely. Sharing the, the more the better. We would love Absolutely. that. Would absolutely love that. Um, Mr. Jeremy Corbyn, thank you again for taking the time to be here. We appreciate it. And we hope you come back soon. My pleasure. Man, what an honor. That was great. Jezza, the absolute boy. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's so good hearing him talk about education and the arts and things like that, which is kind of, you know, certainly here in, in America, like right wingers left to be like, oh, look at the, they love to just, you know, waste time on all this stuff, you know, like, but they also love like things like, for example, like classic rock and like Ma Mark Fisher wrote a lot about how 
the great musicians that came out of the UK in the 1960s and the, all the explosion of art that we saw in, the, in, in that decade really came, a, came to be as a result of the building of the, in, of the British welfare state after World War II in 1945. It's the children that came off of you know, public services, public education, all those things that allowed them to, be, to thrive and be so brilliant at, at, at music. Um, they didn't have to uh, learn how to code. In, in the parlance of our times, right? Um, and and right. you know, those are the things that we're missing. I mean, look at culture now; it's just it's just completely. I know um, it's completely devoid of any actual creativity. It's all been corporatized and commoditized. Um, and um, so, so yeah, I mean, those are the kinds of things that things like the stuff we talk about, um, sort of broad based economic redistribution, public ownership of the tools and mechanisms of our society um, can have all kinds of effects that are not necessarily obvious. Like, yes, it puts food on your table, but it can also allow maybe a genius that is kind of a musical genius, but in today's age would not have the opportunity to learn how to play an instrument, to ha- wouldn't have the time to play an instrument, um, would would have to just, yeah, go into the workforce and work for Amazon or whatever. And instead of instead of having the ability to be supported by the state and and allowed to flourish. And those are the kind of things that we lose when, you know, when neoliberalism kind of takes over and commodifies everything, cuts public services and privatizes um, reams of our lives. So, yeah, it was it's just obviously hearing Corbin talk is always an inspiration to me because he's such an obviously decent human being, such an obviously decent human being, someone who's been fighting these fights for decades, which is always something that I admire. It's easy to get involved in something and then kind of lose interest, but to just dedicate your life to this for life. Every single waking moment of your day um, is obviously so inspiring to me. And the, looking back and seeing the way people like him were treated, people like Bernie are treated, who's obviously another obviously decent man. Um, it just It just shows just how powerful the effects of the media what he talks about news values that these two kind of obviously decent men were smeared as somehow vile vicious angry mean racist xenophobic misogynist insert whatever horrible insult there and just watch an interview with him that's extended and you'll see that he's just clearly at his heart at his core a fundamentally decent human being and yeah, so it was, it was great uh, talking Giannis Varoufakis, Giannis Varoufakis had a great hour-long talk with him that I thought was um, just a gr- good example of what you're talking about, Nando. You really get a sense of um, who he is. I mean, I know that our, our viewers already know, yeah. but if you just want to catch another great conversation, just, uh, you know, uh, look that up on YouTube. Um, but yeah, you know, there was a study done regarding how the media in the UK uh, covered Jeremy Corbyn. And 75% of the media coverage was inaccurate and negative. Mm. Um, and so when you're fighting against that, um, it's it really does show you the, the power of propaganda. I mean, we see it here in the United States as well. And uh, remember, there was a huge portion of the Democratic primaries just dedicated to this ridiculous, um, you know, 
argument against Bernie Sanders allegedly being sexist because he allegedly told Elizabeth Warren that he doesn't think a woman can be president. That that was the smear that was put out without any evidence, um, without any context, by the way, regarding yeah. the conversation. And it was annoying that, um, you know, there were weeks of the campaign, you know, there were weeks of that primary, like, dedicated to that discussion. Yeah. It was so stupid. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. And it's... Um, yeah, should we bring on Kale? See, see a young Kale. What yeah. do you think of, of Jezza? I mean, first of all, the interview was wonderful. Thank you both, and I want to thank Jeremy Corbyn and his team for uh, for agreeing to this and, and coming on the show. Uh, you know, I, I hard hitting really... stuff here at Jacobin <laughs> uh, for Corbyn. He sat in the hot seat and he took it like a man. That's right. Yeah. right. <laughs> I I'm such a nerd as the producer that comes on at the very end that has the um. I have the the Jeremy Ben Atley pin on uh, from uh, yeah. There we go. (laughs) We had we had a nice conversation about um, you know uh, pro Corbin paraphernalia um, during the interview, and I felt bad, Nando. Nando wanted to wear that shirt, but I felt like Hollywood. I I have a Hollywood pitch. Hollywood pitch. The two popes. (laughs) You know, the two absolute boys, mm-hmm. just a, a buddy comedy, Jeremy Corbin and Bernie Sanders. Let's go. Let's make it. Make millions. Maybe that's the podcast. We'll have to. Maybe that we'll, is the podcast. We'll, yeah. we'll talk to Boscar, see if we can work that out. Um, yeah. But just, I mean, what, what Jeremy has done in in the UK, what Sanders has done in the in the US and, and others that have sprung up in the last 10 years, it's an invaluable service to, to working people across the world. Uh, yeah. to people in their countries, but people internationally. Um, and part of it's because these people think internationally, that they genuinely yeah. care about humanity. Uh, and the fact that, like... Look at his he, command Look at his command of the issues uh, around the world. He knew about the Amazon Union Drive, which, yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's just been not been... I mean, there's, there's an article in the New York Times uh, last week, but it's just not been covered here at all. Um, but he knew he about brought it. up prop um, 13 like I yeah I was like what <laughs> that was incredible yeah. just understanding like the ramifications of a proposition a ballot initiative that passed in California in 1978 it's just it's impressive yeah I mean just if we have a future if we if we grow up to to have a future it's because of people like Jeremy Corbyn that yeah. uh you know the trajectories that we're on and that have been on for decades is the further degradation of the environment. It's the further commodification of, of life and the privatization of, of everything, like even down to genes, uh, and not like on, on our pants or on our legs, but like the genes in our body. Like it is it is the efforts of these these tireless people that that come up and say, I'm going to devote my life to this. That I will fight for those who are downtrodden, that are that are uh, struggling, and uh, you know there's there's a reason why the media tries to destroy these people because they there is no there is no science there is no formula that creates them they are just you know organizers broadly but especially uh, uh, Corbin and Sanders these these anomalies that. Uh, you know, they're glitches in the matrix. The the Marxist in me wants to say, like, it's not possible that the like individuals come out of nowhere and and are able to like change the course of history so dramatically. But you know, it, we it happens. It, it does. It does. Sometimes happen. they're the spark. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't know. Martin Luther changed yeah. the course of history, right? I mean, uh, 
there's there's sparks that there's underlying conditions and then there's little sparks and yeah. that's what you need yeah um but we are we are yeah. thoroughly indebted to their efforts and so just wanted to to say that we appreciate everything yeah. they've done for us um we have some super chats there was a lot of really generous um people donating throughout the the show today um a lot of people mentioning the importance of internationalism of yeah. uh, connecting uh, the left in the UK and the left in the US. And, you know, to the extent that that's possible on Zoom, we fully support it, of course, um, and, and appreciate people uh, chiming in with that. Um, I'm trying to see. And remember, there's the moral component of that. But then also um, what Nando mentioned, I think it was last week with fun sound effects, right? I mean, you have to have a internationalist response to uh globalization because mm-hmm. what happens to the money the again money. Nando? the money it flows it goes from one side to the other one <laughs> one click click away and it goes it just goes away <laughs> <laughs> um i'm looking for a question it's mostly people just saying really nice things um <laughs> or uh Pitching us ideas of, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could have Sanders, Corbin, and Chomsky on a video together? Yeah, of course. As, yeah. as the producer yeah. of the show, of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, we'll work on that. Uh, um, I guess um, someone was asking about, I guess more concretely, the uh, the importance of having support um, uh, internationally, of having... Uh, people like Corbyn and other um, important uh, democratic socialists in the UK supporting uh, American candidates and vice versa, um, uh, having American candidates support uh, international uh, socialist politicians and leaders. I mean, that does already happen to an extent. Um, you know, I think uh, I don't want to preempt answers, but it seems like that is something that we continue to to, uh, to work on that I think... Um, it's something that uh, it's incumbent on us on the left to to increase those connections so that in it, it, for endorsements across borders actually matter to a greater extent, that um, we actually understand what's going on around the world and uh, can see how these things are connected very much in the same way that um, Corbin was mentioning earlier. Well, it's, it's especially incumbent on us as Americans um, because... To the extent that we have any sort of political effect, um, it is in the United States, which is the hegemon, right? The, the superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if 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 we don't sort of think about Bolivia or Brazil or whatever, we you know, it's not like that the United States necessarily like orchestrates events in those countries, but certainly um, is involved and allows events in those countries to 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 happen and, and provides political cover and all and all kinds of important things to the extent that we can blunt that in any way um that is that 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 has just a tremendous effect all over the world um you know i think that that's that's why um it was you know bernie sanders in in the 1980s as the burlington mayor was talking about the sandinistas in nicaragua you know that's just that's yeah. just why he understood that to the extent that he had any political effect in the United States, um, it was to affect the role that his own government played in events in those countries. Um, so so yeah, that's it's important to, to always keep your eye on on the world, especially from here, because we're we're sitting inside the inside the empire. 
Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, I, I know I mentioned him in almost every episode, but, um, that's why Michael was so, uh, Michael Brooks was so valuable with his show because it was one of the only, um, you know, left-wing shows that, uh, really made an effort to talk about, um, what was going on in the world and why it was so important to have, um, an internationalist ideology and responding to a lot of what we're experiencing. Um, I learned a lot from him uh, about uh, Bolivia, about obviously Brazil, um, about struggles across the world. um, And that kind of programming is really important. And, you know, uh, we do our best and I'm continuing to learn. But um, I love going back and watching his archives uh, when I want to really fully understand, especially his illicit histories, when I want to really fully understand struggles from around the world. The other thing, I mean, the, the moral component that uh, was just mentioned, of course, is is it has to be central or has to be a, a key component of kind of left politics of, of understanding the world through both a materialist lens, but also a, a deeply humanist lens of uh, caring about others and, and wanting a society that uh, puts needs over profit. Uh, but the other side of it is that uh, our enemies in these fights are already international. That um, yeah. So between actual uh, corporate ownership and control, uh, as well as um, organizations and institutions that, for the most part, are there to facilitate in uh, in you know uh, trading capital of, of accumulating greater and greater capital internationally, uh, that you know our even, you know, say what you will, I mean, obviously it's not explicitly there only to, um, you know, to, to develop and facilitate the expansion of capitalism, but large kind of international organizations like the, um, like NATO, for instance, which, you know, at its best does try to have greater international cooperation. It largely is between, uh, again, the actual nation states and the interests of these ruling classes and what we fundamentally need to do is build the infrastructure so that we can have uh, international power uh, that is focused on working class people and their needs. Um, mm. You know, it's you know, Chomsky said that the ruling class, the capitalists, were all Marxists. I mean, they're all I mean, really. We should expand it. They're all internationalist Marxists as well. Um, that is one hundred percent true. Well, in the most <laughs> they know they're, they're, they know that their struggles are linked. Um, they fight mm-hmm. every once in a while, just like everyone fights, but they, they, uh, they fundamentally understand that their struggles are linked. So, yeah. Um, yeah, because we got another question asking, how do we help to create a transnational counter hegemony that's grounded in theory, structural critique and solidarity rather than vacuous, amorphous, anti-establishment rhetoric? Um, I mean, again, I think we're, that's part of, as a lot of what we're trying to get at, um, do you want to take that? It's a, that's a big question. Um, so, I mean, I know that informing is a big part of it, right? Because all the messaging that people get, at least from the way the U.S. press talks about uh, these issues, is um, it's all about ways to maintain hegemonic power for the United States, Right. Every other country is a threat. Um, And so I think breaking through that kind of messaging is an important part of that. Um, But that's a huge question. Uh, Nando, do you have anything to add to it? No, I I think that the I think about the 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 second part of the question a lot, that the sort of the 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 anti-establishment rhetoric. I mean, there is 
there's um, some value in that kind of pose, uh, I suspect, but as a sort of theoretical framework, uh, it's incredibly limited. Um, mm-hmm. it, it can lead you, it can lead you to some, some, some weird spots. Um, the, the theoretical framework should be capital and labor. I mean, that's just, that's, that's the, that's the divide. That's the political struggle. Um, that's the societal struggle really. Um, you know, when you, when you think about inside, outside anti-establishment versus pro-establishment, you know, that doesn't necessarily follow to, to great, um, to great ways of looking at the events in the world. Um, whereas if you look at it through very sort of strict capital and labor lens, you most likely will land on, on, on the right, in the right place. And I think Bernie and Corbyn both understand that very, very well. Um, they can always, you can ask them about anything and they can always frame it in those terms. Um, uh, that's, that's their default. It's, it's, it's where they come back to, um, anti-establishment stuff, you know, is very easily co-opted by the right. It's just, that's just, that's just the reality of it. Um, it's very easy, um, for them to adopt that pose. It's very difficult for them to, to adopt the capital versus labor pose. They can't do it. Um, so that, that's where I think, um, you know, that's why I think like the, the, this socialist framework that we think about things is, is very valuable. Right. And that's just the, my guess, my last thought on this, um, is, you know, like what you're saying that the right so easily co-ops this, it's because they explicitly say the political elites that are screwing you over, that it then becomes a means of undermining any kind of government or any kind of academic elites. Yeah. Right. Cultural elites. Yeah. And so the left, of course, like there's plenty of political elites that the left is against, of course, but we're not against like having like uh, governments. We're not against having like public institutions and, and, you know, to have an effective government, you will need a little bit of bureaucracy, but it should be as democratic as possible, of course, mm-hmm. right? But the point is, is that, like, we emphasize the the total domination over our lives of economic elites, over our bosses, over capitalists and big corporations that largely do control how we spend the vast majority of our waking lives, that they, you know, the workplace becomes uh, an island of private tyranny. Um, I would just, the I guess my last thought on all of this, um, going back to the question, um, is that there was, there, there actually is a history of labor movements and left socialist political projects around the world that had international solidarity, uh, and that, uh, build those institutions. Um, and that, you know, really one of its greatest kind of enemies or one of its biggest obstacles that I think the left still has to figure out good answers for are questions of nationalism, um, of questions of, uh, you know, how do we prioritize um, people's understanding of the world through that lens that Nando's talking about of it's it's working people against these corporations, against capital. Um, and, uh, you know, it's something that I think we still have to figure out, you know, better and better answers to, to choose internationalism and solidarity over nationalism and um more and more kind of cloistered uh you know identity politics of uh you know these these smaller associations that end up becoming insular and and harmful uh to building solidarity um and and recognizing common humanity definitely wow common humanity does not 
get in the way of saying that actually, yes, there is a small number of people who control everything that we need to be at war with because they are try- because they are already at war with us, um, referring to capital. So, mm-hmm. you know, we want a world for everyone and we do that by advancing the interests of working people. <laughs> those are, those yes, are my sir. final thoughts. <laughs> Love it. it. All right. Well, um, that does it for today's show. And uh, great job, everyone, all around. And thank you to our audience for um, supporting the work we do. Thank you for the super chats. And thank you for subscribing and helping to share uh, this episode and others. It's one of the best ways you can help support Jacobin and the programming that we're putting out there for you. Um, We absolutely love you guys. And uh, I hope you tune in next week for another episode of Weekends. Have a fantastic week. Bye. Bye. Thank you.